Now, when we're done with the, these uh, hot-button questions, I'm going to go through First John. And, and so I'm just kind of giving you a heads up if you want to start reading. I don't know when we'll start. I'm thinking in the next two or three weeks we'll launch into First John because First John uh, is, is really like, um, it's like a litmus test on many things. One of his favorite phrases is that you may know, that you may know. He doesn't want us maybe so, perhaps so, hope so, think so. He wants us in a no-so faith. Amen? That you may know, that you may know that you're in the light, that you may know that you're saved, that you may know that you love one another, that you may know that you're grounded in the truth. He deals with all those things. So First John will be launching uh, in the very near future. Now, I, I, I took the questions kind of in order, uh, some of them in order, and some of them I pulled from what I didn't get to last week. But these are questions that I think we all need to know. Some of them are, are a little loftier or, or a little, little um, deeper than others. But you know what? If it's your question, it's valid. That's the way I look at it. If it's your question, it's valid. If you want an answer, it's valid. So I want to deal with one that is close to my heart. Um, this is from a person who has a loved one who has departed from the faith. And one of the things that made them depart from the faith was this question. And since this question had the ability to, to move them to walk away from Christianity, then I want to answer it. Amen? Now, here's the question. The Bible has been edited and transcribed so much over the past 1,800 years. How do we know we have an accurate account? Now, I can see how the enemy worked against this person because the enemy is trying to get this person to doubt the validity. validity let me try this again. The validity of the word of God. Uh, so this question has been bugging them. Uh, if it's been messed with so many times by, you know, translators and, and whatnot throughout the centuries, then surely we don't have an accurate account of what was once handed down by John, Peter, James, Jude, Paul. Uh, it's been messed with too much, okay? This is a question, if I were lecturing at a college, I'd get this question right off the bat. You're up there teaching the Bible, preaching the Bible, but you don't even know if you've got the original writings. You don't even know if you've got the original Word of God. It's been messed with so much. Come on. You don't have what was originally written. So knowing that's a question that's out there a lot in certain circles, let me answer it. A little bit lengthy answer, but you're going to like it. How many of you have ever wondered this or heard this question? All right. Doubt about the Word of God. All right. Now, let me take the two words they use, edited and transcribed. The Bible's been edited and transcribed so much over the past 1,800 years. Uh, the Bible has not been so much edited and transcribed over the past 1,800 years as it has been translated from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, as well as paraphrased. Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to hold it up. Hold up your Bible. All right, every Bible in here is either a translation or a paraphrase. If you've got a translation, wave it. 
because it'll, it'll call itself a translation. If you've got a paraphrase, the Living Bible or the Message, wave it. If you've got something I've never heard of, wave it. No, I'm just kidding. Now, let's just dig in right here at the very beginning. So you, you either have a, a translation or a paraphrase. Now, this person is wanting to know how, after all the translations that have taken place, it's still an accurate account of what was originally written. How do we know we really have the original word of God? And it's a great question. It's a great question. It's a good question. Now, first, let's look at how the, new, the original New Testament writings were faithfully preserved. Everybody say preserved. Because the preservation of the original writings is a miracle. Not just the Bible, but all ancient manuscripts were written on papyrus. You know, you see it rolled up in those scrolls and, and, and all the... Um, in Search of the Lost Ark and movies like that, you see these scrolls, mysterious scrolls, and it's unrolled, and they read it like this, right? So all ancient manuscripts were written on papyrus, which didn't have a very long shelf life, and they knew it. So people hand-copied the originals to maintain the message and circulate it to others. So over time... The copies multiply because you got copyists. Everybody say copyists. Now I'm saying copyists, plural copyists, okay, took, took what was copied and they recopied them and recopied them and recopied them over time so that after a while you got a whole bunch of copies out there, all right? Because we didn't have the printing press. We didn't have any of that. If you can imagine sitting there with a quill, and some ink that you had to dip into every three or four words. And, and you're just laboriously copying every letter. I mean, we're talking about stiff neck deluxe. We're talking about a labor of love. Now, the more extant, now I'm, I'm explaining what extant means, E-X-T-A-N-T. The more extant, which means still in existence or surviving, the more extant copies we have today of an ancient writing that agree with each other, the more confident we are that we have what was originally written. Are you with me? Amen. On the other hand, I'll give you an example. If we had 10 surviving documents all claiming to be copies of an ancient writer, let's say somebody that, that wrote 2,500 years ago, when the Old Testament prophets wrote, okay? If we had 10 surviving documents all claiming to be copies of an ancient writer from 2,500 years ago, but we look at these copies and they're different in content. They don't say the same thing. They say different things. But they're all claiming to be from the same writer, but they're all different then, then how many, you know, we would lose confidence immediately that we have the original writing because they're all different. How do I know which one's real and which one is not? Okay? For instance, I'll give you some examples. Few people doubt that the Greek philosopher Plato's writing called the Republic. You don't have to know who the Republic is. I'm just giving you an example. The Republic is a classic. You, you may... Uh, read it in college. I don't know. College these days are indoctrination centers, not really teaching. But used to, you would have read the Republic. 
It's a classic. It was written by Plato around 380 B.C. So, th- so 380 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Plato wrote the Republic. Yet the earliest copies we have of it are dated 900 years after Jesus. That's the, that's the earliest copy we've got of it. So you know what that means? 1,300 years passed from the time Plato wrote it to the first copies we have. 1,300 years passed. And guess what? We only have seven copies. Everybody say seven. Seven copies of an ancient document written 380 years before Jesus. We have seven copies, yet we teach it like it is gospel gold. In other words, we believe, any college professor, go to any college professor, you believe we got the writings of Plato? Oh, sure. Well, how do you know we got the writings of Plato? Because we've got seven surviving copies. Well, what's the earliest one you've got? Well, uh, or, uh, well it kind of, you know, it goes back to uh, gee golly whiz about 900 years after Jesus was born. So you're telling me that the earliest copy we've got is 900 years after Jesus was born, lived, died, and resurrected and went back to heaven. The earliest one we've got where somebody copied it and we've got it is 900 years after Jesus and 1,300 years after Plato wrote it. And you're telling me you're sure it's Plato? Are you with me? You're in college tonight. All right? This is heady stuff, but I want th- this matters, believe me, because I'm about to show you how absolutely reliable our New Testament is. Hang on. Yet, with only seven copies in existence, it's enough for colleges and universities to have whole semesters and, and years of study on Plato. Not Plato, Plato. Although in colleges these days, it's probably about Play-Doh. Now, let me give you another example. Another example would be Caesar's, Julius Caesar's writings, and they are titled the Gallic Wars. Doesn't matter that you know what they are, I'm showing you something. They were written around 100 to 44 years before Jesus was born. So it's an ancient document. The copies we have today are dated 1,000 years after he wrote it, and we have 10 copies. But do modern scholars, I ask you, I can answer this, believe that we have the original words of Caesar? Ask them. They'll say, absolutely. How do you know that? Because we have 10 copies. And the earliest one we've got was copied, written, 1,000 years after the dude lived and died. Now watch this. When it comes to the New Testament, written between 50 to 100 A.D. In other words, the whole New Testament was compiled 50 to 100 years after Jesus lived and, and, and uh, died and rose again from the dead. We have more than, read it with me, 5,000 copies. Can we read that again? We have more than 5,000 copies. Not seven not 10, five, say it, thousand copies. And all of them are within 50 to 225 years 
after their original writing. Not 1,300 years, not 1,000 years. And you know what? Those 5,000 copies all agree. They all agree. I mean, come on, give the Lord a hand. Do you think that God, do you think that God wanted us to be sure that we had the original, what Jesus originally said and did, and what the apostles originally said and wrote? Amen? Do you think that God wanted us to know for sure? Because how can you possibly debate 5,000 copies through centuries of time and they all agree? And here's another furthermore. Furthermore, when it came to the copying of Scripture, scribes, or what we would call monks, were very meticulous in their copying of the original manuscripts because they feared God. They feared what John had written. Anybody that takes away from this or adds to this is going to be is going to receive the judgments written in this book. So, man, they were fearfully with a trembling hand copying every letter, every comma, every jot and tittle, every word, because they feared God. They checked and rechecked their work to make sure it perfectly matched. Now, here's the bottom line. When the New Testament writers originally wrote, what they wrote is preserved better than any other ancient manuscript by far. We can be more certain of what we read about Jesus' life and words than we're certain of the writings of Julius Caesar, the Greek philosophers Plato and Aristotle, and the Greek writer Homer who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey all combined. All combined. There's more scholarly affirmation of your Bible by far than any document in history. Now, isn't it amazing, isn't it amazing that in light of that, Jesus is not taught in the colleges? Oh, Plato's taught. Oh, so is Aristotle. So's Nietzsche. I mean, I could go through the list of people that are taught like they were gods, but the God-man and man-God, Jesus Christ, is not taught in colleges when, in fact, we have more evidence of what he said, more proof, more validity of what he said than all of them put together. Hallelujah. So I want you to be confident in your Bible. Can we hold it up? And, and, and I want you to know you've got a miraculous document right there. You've got a miraculously preserved book right there. Amen? Can we say thank God? Now, let me move a little bit further because the question also had to do with mentioned translations and paraphrases. Let me talk about translations for a minute. There's a bunch of them. Matter of fact, you know that there's about 120 English translations of the Bible as of today. Let me do a little check. How many of you have a King James in your hand? Hold it up. You got a King James. All right. How many of you have a New American Standard? Oh, way back there. How many of you have an NIV? Oh, I knew there'd be several of those. How many of you have an NLT? New Living Translation. Oh, there we go. I hope nobody has the Passion Translation because that's really... uh, I'll talk about that someday. It's not even a translation. I don't know why they call it that, but that's another topic. Now, how many of you have a living Bible? There's one. Why are you so ashamed of your living Bible? Hold up your hand. 
Oh, there we go. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. How many of you have an amplified? Look, every ver- all these versions that I, how many have one that I haven't named yet? What is it? Oh, the New King James. Of course, that's what I study from. Help me, Jesus. I forgot my favorite one. All right. Huh? Oh, the modern English. All right. That's all right. Now, 120. Now, that's just English translations. So some good ones, in my opinion, are the King James, NASB, New American Standard, the New uh, International Version, the New Living Translation. That, that's some good ones. There's, there's others in a couple of paraphrases that I've already mentioned, the Living Bible and the Message. But listen carefully to me now. There's a big difference between a translation and a paraphrase. Big difference. And it matters. I'm going to show you why you need to be reading a translation for your study time and not a paraphrase. So let me just dive in here. A translation, what is it? It's where you begin, not you, but a translator begins with the original language and they translate it word for word into another language, in our case, English. Because the Bible was written in what two languages? Greek, Hebrew. Everybody say, that's Greek to me. Yeah, but they were written in Greek and Hebrew. Now, the translator is not putting into it what he wants it to say. It's the translator's job to look at the Greek word or the Hebrew word and translate it into the closest English word he can find. All right? On the other hand, a paraphrased Bible like the Living Bible or the Message is written to produce a Bible that flows in a manner like a novel, flows like a novel. It makes the Bible more pleasant and easy to read, but in the process, listen carefully, significant changes are made to the original text, which is the original writing. Changes are made. It is not a word-for-word translation. Okay? So you're getting... With a paraphrase, it may be easier to read, but sometimes it's watered down. I'm going to show you. So we're in college tonight, at least with this first question. So everybody say, I'm in college. All right, I know it's been a long day. Some of you have dealt with a lot of stuff, but let's turn our brains on here a minute. Let me show you. I'm going to show you a couple of comparisons between the original Greek language, a translation, and a paraphrase using the first six words of John 3.16, which we all know, let's say what they are, for God so loved the world. If you believe that's true, say thank you, Jesus. Amen. Now, in Greek, those six words look like this, right on the screen. This can't go on radio, at least this part, because they can't see it, so help me, Jesus. But in Greek, it looks like this. You don't have to read it. You just have to see it. You can see that that's six words. Now, that little zero or O um, there on the bottom left. No, it's not on the bottom left on that one. It is on that one. doesn't matter. There's the six words in Greek. Now, a word-for-word translation would read literally this way. Thus, indeed, loved God the world. Now, that's how the Greek would read. Thus, indeed, loved God the world. That's the original Greek. So that doesn't sound like English, Pastor Jeff. That's because it's Greek. All right? 
Thus indeed, love God the world. So most translations, like the King James, NASB, any decent one, have translated it how? God so loved the world. It's the same thing, right? It's the same thing. Thus indeed, love God the world. But if you're going to anglicize it, if you're going make, to make it into English, you say God so loved the world. But the paraphrase message Bible puts it this way. This is how much God loved the world. Now notice, it departs from a word-for-word translation and paraphrases it for easier reading because that's not what the original Greek says. But now let me show you a more concerning verse. Another example would be the last three words of 1 John 4 verse 8 in the original Greek. Now here's 1 John 4, 8. The one, and this is why I'm going into 1 John. The one who does not love does not know God. For, now I'm going to read them to you. Theos, agape, esten. That's how it reads. Everybody say theos, agape, esten. Go home and tell people you spoke Greek tonight. All right? Let's say it again. Theos, God, agape, what is it? Love, esten, means is. Now that's three Greek words. Now, the last three words translated word for word out of the Greek are God love is. That's how it reads in the Greek. God love is. Now, when I read that, I want to switch it without even knowing what the translators did. And I want to say God is love, right? God is love. So the translators, of course, translated it, God is love. And I'm so thankful for that verse. But here comes the message Bible paraphrase. And look at what it says. My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since what? Love comes from God. Now, wait a minute. That's not what the Greeks said. Are, are you with me? Because notice how the ending is changed. Not God is love, but love comes from God. Now, to me, something has been compromised there. The truth that John wanted us to get in the original writing is that God doesn't just love. He is love. His very essence is love. We serve a God who, who loves because he is love. He can't do anything else. He's love. All right? But the paraphrase message Bible gives us a truth watered down. Well, God, love flows from God. But see, I want to know what the Holy Spirit said through John. Now, follow me. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's breathed out of God. So I want to know what the Holy Spirit is telling me about God. Not what a paraphraser wants to say about it or how a paraphraser wants to change it. So I want to know this truth. My God, his very essence is love. He can't hate. He can't hate. He, he can't do anything but everything he does comes out of his being, in essence, pure, undiluted, undistilled love. So do you see with me that the paraphrase watered it down? Come on, everybody. Do you see it with me? Say, give me, do this or do this. Amen? All right. 
You might read a paraphrase for pleasure, but I don't recommend a paraphrase if you're going to study the Bible. You want to use a translation. Now, some of the best translations, again, are KJV, NKJV. I got some of them up there. If you really want to grow in your understanding of Scripture, get a good study Bible. Some good ones are the NKJV study Bible, the ESV study Bible, the NIV study Bible. So in answer to this person's original question, we know that we have faithful copies of the original writings because of the thousands of existing copies in existence that all agree with one another. And the multitude of Bible translators have simply translated from the same reliable Greek and Hebrew Bible to give us the various translations. Can we thank God for this tonight? Amen. So I want you to be very, very confident in your Bible. It's not a book of myths and fairy tales and fables and old wives' tales and all of that. It's the very God-breathed word preserved through the centuries. And in the original manuscripts, there's not one solitary mistake. Jesus said every jot and every tittle are going to be fulfilled. Amen? All right, now let's come out of that deep scholarly water and let's go into tithing. Everybody say, all right, tithing. This person says, I'd like some clarification regarding tithing. I know the Bible teaches tithing and I do tithe. I do not have any issue with that. What I do not understand is why the church as a whole does not teach tithing as a personal private relationship between the tither and God. We pass a plate or something similar so others cannot help but see that we have given, if not how much. Now, then they go on to say, TPC has the deposit boxes in the wall, and they are, they're back there. So in case you didn't know about them, let me tell you, they're there. Deposit boxes back there in those walls. Um, or we can give online or text. Why do, they ask, why do we put the cards in the offering buckets to emphasize we've given? I don't mean to judge or be rude in any way. I just don't understand. It's a great question. I don't mind. I don't, there's, it's not an offensive question at all. Now, let me answer. This person is concerned with Jesus' teaching about giving in secret. You remember when he said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give. He said, I want you to give in secret, and your father who sees in secret will openly reward you. This person's concern is, if that's true, when we give, people can see that we give. And sometimes they can even see our names on something that goes by in, in the bucket or whatever. And so they're, they're saying, uh, you know, what's up with that? Why do we do it that way? Okay, the answer is that the Pharisees, here's why Jesus taught what he did. They had morphed into people, the Pharisees, who only did what they did. And the three things Jesus named were praying fasting and giving for the praise and recognition of men. They wanted men to look at their praying and fasting and giving and go, ooh, aren't they spiritual? Aren't they holy? Aren't they godly? Aren't they whatever? Okay? And it had reached a truly disgusting level. So Jesus nipped it by encouraging his true followers to do these things privately as unto God and not unto men. All right? So he was he was coming against this motive, this motivation of I'm going to do what I do so that men horizontally will see me and give me praise and I'm not doing it as unto the Lord. So Paul 
himself came along and said, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. For it's from the Lord that we shall receive the reward of our inheritance. Now that said, the envelope they mentioned, they, they said, why did we put the cards in the offering buckets to emphasize we've given? The, these are envelopes. And the envelopes with the, with the personal information on them are for those who give cash and they want a record for it uh, for tax purposes. They want a record kept for tax purposes at the end of the year. Okay? And so it's not to be seen of men. Plus, we don't ask anybody to put in the, the, the envelope doesn't even have a place for you to put in an amount. It's just a name if you want to put your name. And you better put your name. If you want credit for it at the end of the year, then you've got to put your name. You put a $100 bill in there, and it's just a blank envelope. God bless you. You just gave. And we, we'll, you'll never have anything for it at the end of the year. But since we are in a nation that does reward for giving to nonprofits, we want you to get your benefit from giving. Okay? And, I, and I'm going to guess that most checks are folded so as to avoid name recognition. I haven't seen anybody get out of a $100 bill and pop it, watching for everybody to look and then drop it in. Just wanted to be sure everybody around me saw it. You know, I give checks, and I always fold them, okay? So giving anonymously, and I, I firmly believe, is what happens at TPC as a rule. But I understand their concern. Now we come to a weightier question. If a Christian commits suicide, do they go to heaven? That's a big one. I have performed several funerals in my lifetime for Christians that committed suicide. How many of you have been saved long enough to know that Christians have problems too? Right? Uh, we're, we're not some pie in the sky. Everything's cool once you're saved. No more trouble, no more pain. In some instances, things get even worse when you get saved because you get persecuted and whatnot. So having said that, I've seen, I've seen the pain of suicide. And I'm invariably asked by family members and friends when I perform a funeral for somebody that committed suicide, did my loved one go to heaven? Did they go to heaven? So I've had to study this, and I want to just give you what I've arrived at. You can chew the meat, spit out the bones. If you don't agree with me, I'm still saved, you're still saved, okay? But I believe that once a person is genuinely born again, their salvation is secure. Now, I believe that. I believe it because the Bible says it. My view is that a person who takes their own life is not thinking clearly. Clearly, they're not. They're desperate. They're feeling hopeless. Sometimes they're in unbearable pain. And you know what? Sometimes their minds are clouded with medication. In the cases of Christian suicide, and I've done one funeral that I'll never forget, it was a suicide where the person wasn't a Christian. It's the hardest funeral I've ever done. And I've done funerals with little children, little babies, um, teenagers. This one, the suicide of somebody I know was not saved, was the hardest one I've ever done. But in the case of a Christian suicide, I've got to stand on the words of Jesus who promised my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them what, everyone? And, and what, now read it with me 
What's next? And they shall never perish. Keep going. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and nobody can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, why would we interpret that as being everybody, as, as far as the, the nobody, nobody can snatch them out of my hands or the Father's hands. Why do we exclude the person who committed suicide from the nobody? In other words, they're part of the nobody. If, if nobody can snatch them out of the Father's hand, then neither can the person. That includes the suicide. Now, I know this is touchy and sensitive. And some of you might be thinking, Jeff, if you teach that, a bunch of people are going to go out and kill themselves. Well, I don't believe that. I have to stand on Scripture. The Scripture is my authority. I don't know how you get unborn again. How do you get unborn again? I don't know how you do it. But let me give you the flip side. Here's the flip side. We have one life in which to serve God and store up riches in heaven. Do we not? There's no reincarnation. You're not coming back as a bug, a toad, a frog, a cow, a butterfly. You're not coming back. Okay? We have one life to live, to quote the soap opera. One life to live. And Jesus told us, while we're here in this life, store up riches for yourselves in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. So Jesus said, this brief time on earth, it's a, it's a blink, it's a camera flash, it, it, it's a pause, it's, it's, it, it's, just a, it's just a, it's faster than a blink sandwiched in between two eternities, eternity past and eternity future. However, that blink is the time in which we've been allotted a chance by God to store up treasures in heaven to live for him, to serve him, that our lives would count for him so that when we get to the other side, there is a reward for us. Amen? I mean, there's the crown of righteousness. There's the crown of the soul winner, the soul winner's crown. There's a crown for the the faithful pastor. There's crowns that are going to be given. And the person that takes their own life short circuits the time that God allotted for them. Eternal rewards, I believe, will be lost. Precious time granted by God to serve him, reach others, love your loved ones, and finish the course that has been given to you is is aborted. So there will be eternal loss. Amen? Are you with me? See, see, if God has given me X number of years, I want to milk those years for everything they're worth. Live for him, serve him, love others, preach his word, love others in his name, use my gift, make a mark for him because this life is soon over and we fly away. But when we get there, there's rewards or not. Paul says some are going to be gold, silver, precious stones, and others, wood, hay, and stubble, our works. And they'll, they'll be tested by fire. I want my works to survive, and I want a reward. I am greedy with one thing. I want all that God has for me, and I'm very greedy for it. Okay? Now, let me close. 
finish uh, this topic with this. Suicide is a very selfish act. And that's another powerful reason to not go there because the pain that a suicide inflicts on loved ones is lifelong. I've seen parents and children never get over it. And it also sends a message to them, suicide is the way out. And that's a very bad legacy. Amen? So in short, I don't believe you lose your salvation, but lost eternal rewards and a bad legacy are not worth taking your life. I trust God. I don't believe it's in the authority of any any human being to take life. Only God can take life. That's why starting with abortion all the way to euthanasia, I think they're all wrong based on the word of God. All right. Another question. Y'all are kind of serious looking tonight. Have I, have, I, have I taken you down? Are you enjoying this tonight? Okay. You're looking at me like. <laughs> now, since we've been learning about covenants and the difference between a conditional general and unconditional covenant, which I taught on a few weeks ago, My question is this, says this person, what criteria do you use to determine if a covenant or promise is directed solely at Israel or if it's also directed at us? So how can we know, reading the Old Testament, that a promise is made either only to Israel or if it's made also to us? All right, let me tell you something about studying your Bible and Bible interpretation. I'm going to use this question to teach you something very important. In studying your Bible, Context is king. Can we say that together? Context is king. In real estate, we say it's location, location, location. In Bible study, interpreting the Bible, it's context, context, context. A text without a context is a pretext. Straight out of seminary. That's free. But this is true. So one way you know if it's for Israel and Israel only, if it's for us as well, context. Let me give you an example. In other words, what came before it and what went after it. Most heretical false teaching takes a verse, pulls it out of its context, and builds a doctrine around a verse that's out of context. So I'll give you an example. God tells Israel through Moses, when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God, what will the Lord do? The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will scatter you. All right, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that that does not apply to us. Okay, this is clearly for Israel only, not the New Testament believer, because New Testament believers go into sin all the time, and they're not exiled to another land. They're just whooped by God in the woodshed, right? They're not exiled to another land. God takes you out to the woodshed, and and you'd wish you got exiled to another land. The context lets us know that's not about us. So context. Now, another way to tell whether an Old Testament promise is for New Testament believers, and this is big, if it's carried over and repeated in the New Testament, 
if it's carried over. For example, the promise of Isaiah 54, verse 10. Isaiah speaks to Israel, and here's the promise. God says through Isaiah, My unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. That was written with Israel in mind. But the Holy Spirit has used those words to comfort many Christians today because essentially, is it not, the same promise is found in the New Testament where God says, I'll never fail you. I'll never forsake you. Jesus said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So it's so similar to what was spoken through Isaiah. We know that it's good for us. We can walk in that truth. It's good for us, right? Amen. Another way some really bad false teaching gets started is false teachers or misled teachers pull something out of the Old Testament and they apply it to the New Testament when it should not be. I'll give you an example. I think I gave it a couple of weeks ago, but in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, they were told, don't weave garments from two different fabrics. Don't weave garments from two different fabrics because God was teaching them purity. He was teaching them to to stick with him. There's one God. There is only one God and and, and not a bunch of gods. He was trying to show them uh, purity in everything right down to their weaving of their clothes. But does it come over in the New Testament and say, okay, now all you New Testament believers, don't you dare go to the store and buy anything of mixed fabric. Because if it's of mixed fabric, you're sinning. Most of us would have to go home right now and change. Right? So since it's not repeated in the New Testament, listen to me, church, it's not valid. So it's very important that we understand this. Now, God said in the Old Testament, don't eat shellfish. Well, we go, bummer, because I love red lobster, and I love papados. But it says don't eat shellfish. Well, but Paul comes a little over in the New Testament, and what does Paul say? Whatever is put before you, eat it, because it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And how many of you are so glad that Paul said that? Because we are free to eat lobster. We are free to eat crawdads. We are free to eat catfish. Amen. That that was kind of half-hearted. How many of you are glad you can eat those things? All right. But see, see, if I wanted to put you under bondage, I could say, well, the Bible says you're not supposed to eat that stuff. It's unclean. And, And if I laid that on you, I'd be laying something on you the New Testament does not put on you. So it's so important we learn how to study the Bible and what to take as valid and what is not valid. So context and whether the promises repeated in the New Testament are two keys to know whether or not it's for Israel only or also includes us. Next question, I'm going to deal with a couple more. Just wanted to know if we are living in the days when the sixth seal has been opened. Now, you know that in the book of Revelations, there's 21 judgments that are released on mankind. The seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments. If you've been with me when I taught Revelations, you've been through this. Um, It starts with the seal judgments, and it progressively gets worse and worse. The bowl judgments are worse than the seal judgments, and or I'm sorry, the trumpet judgments are worse than the seal judgments, and the bowl judgments are the worst of all. Now, they want to know, are we living in the days of the sixth seal, the opening of the sixth seal? And I answer, I don't believe so. 
because the sixth seal spoken of in Revelation 6, 12 to 17 releases cataclysmic cosmic judgments we've not yet witnessed. This seal, all the seal judgments, the trumpets and the bowls are reserved for the great seven-year tribulation period yet to come, and I don't believe we will be there for it. Well, why not, Jeff? Well, because I believe we're going to be taken out because the Bible says God has not appointed his people to wrath. And those judgments, the seal, the trumpet, and the bowl judgments are judgments of wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Now we're coming to my favorite, voting. Do Christians need to vote? No, let's go home. No, I'm kidding. Let me deal with this because this is so important. I can't tell you the confusion that surrounds this. Then, Okay, so they ask this question. Do Christians need to vote? If so, why? Is it choosing the lesser of the two evils? Is, it, is praying better than voting? Now, let me answer. I believe it's the duty and responsibility of every Christian to vote and to vote for leaders who promote Christian principles, though they themselves may be lost. Now listen carefully. Let me take you through history a bit. In Bible days, there was no democracy. There was no voting republic. They lived under tyranny, dictatorship of Caesars. All right? There was no vote. And if you said, I've got a I've got a hand in this, or I've got a choice in this, or I don't like what Caesar just did, you dead. Okay? They didn't have the option to vote, but we do. Now, let me tell you about the candidates. No candidate is going to be perfect. When you vote for somebody in office, you're not voting for a choir boy. You're not voting for your next pastor. You're not voting for a priest. You're voting issues. Now, stay with me. You're voting issues. Again, they may not even be Christians. But if their platform embraces Christian biblical truths, to vote for them is to help propagate those truths. Okay? Um, I've never had somebody I voted for who fit the bill completely, filled all my expectations. I just look for somebody closest. That's all, closest. Because I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm an issue voter. I look for issues. I look for the issues. I listen to where they stand on the issues that I know matter. If, you know, so now follow me because I know this is touchy. I'm not getting political on you at all. I'm not. I'm answering a question that's valid because it has spiritual repercussions. Now, Those who say, well, God is sovereign, Jeff, and he's in control of his world, and so voting won't do anything to help him. He doesn't need my help. The world's going to go the way he wants it to anyway. Really? Now, listen, God certainly is in control, but that does not mean we should do nothing to further his will. We're commanded, for instance, to pray for our leaders in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Well, If it doesn't matter and we should leave everything up to the sovereignty of God, why worry about praying for the leaders? What does 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4 say? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for 
all people. And then look at verse 2, for kings, in our case, presidents and uh, house and senate and so on and so forth. And all who are in what? High positions of political authority. Why should we pray for them? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I like peace and quiet. So even though the first century Christians had no vote, they could pray. But here's the deal. We can do both. Why should we bother with both? Because righteous rule leads to a peaceful, quiet life. Now, let me tell you a truth. Much of the suffering on earth, historically up to now, much of the worst suffering is because of godless leadership. Look at the 20th century, World War I, World War II. Look at how many people were killed in World War II. Why? Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, wicked rulers, millions killed. Because of atheism. Millions wiped out by atheists. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 12, when the righteous triumph, there is great elation. But when the wicked rise to power, people hide. In other words, when the wicked rule, it brings fear, it brings unrest, and it brings oppression. So scripture gives Christians' instructions to obey legitimate authority unless it contradicts the Lord's commands. The disciples were told, don't preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. And they sent them out. But what did Peter say? We must obey God rather than men. So what is Peter saying there? I will submit to authority, wicked or otherwise, until it requires me to go against my conscience. Then I can't go there. Now, with that in mind, How then, I ask you, can a Christian vote for somebody, for instance, that will support abortion? I'm just asking. How? How? Because if you vote for a person who's all for abortion, what are they going to do if they win? They're going to kill children. And, And who played a part in that? The people that voted for them. I mean, come on, let's use common sense here. Okay? I actually had a woman one time say to me, when a certain politician had had been elected and they were very pro-abortion, and this woman, I'll tell you, was a pastor's wife. And she said, when when I brought up the abortion issue, she said, oh, that's always been around. And I just went, wait a minute. Murder's always been around too. So has rape. So has drug abuse. So has theft because it's always been around. We need to help it stick around. Okay. Or how about somebody who's going to push sexual perversion? Like we've seen in our nation in the last few years. How about somebody that's going to get behind godless atheistic education, kick Christ and God out of schools? You can pick the issues. So as born-again believers, we ought to strive to choose leaders who will stand for biblical biblical truth as much as possible. 
as much as possible. You're not going to get a perfect guy or gal. It's not going to happen. But you want one as close as you can. But for me, for me, the deal breaker is if somebody running is for abortion, I don't even need to pray about it. I don't even, because there's no way I'm getting my hands bloody, okay? Because I'm a partaker with them if I vote them in. Now, you say, Jeff, you too are too getting political. Oh, no. Listen, abortion is not a political issue. It may be a political hot button, but it is not political at its core. It's very spiritual at its core. Because it is what depraved nations do that have forsaken God. I can take you through the Bible. I'm just talking from the Bible. So if they're for abortion, I don't even need to, listen, you're not going to find me anywhere near them. And I could go over a couple of other issues, but, but for me, for me, if, if I'm in a nation where I can vote, then I'm going to be an issue voter, not a personality voter, not a party voter, an issue voter. Issues are all that matter to me. And I'm going to listen to them, and I'm going to run them through the filter of my Bible. And if I've got one that has got three biblical things that they might somehow stand behind, but i got another one that's got eight, I'm going with the eight. Because I want as much righteousness out there as I can. Because I'm supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, if I just stay home and I'm a purist, I say, well, because they don't, reach all 10 of my necessary issues. If they don't, if they don't make 100 on my test, then I'm not going to go and vote for them at all. You just gave their opponent a victory. So if, if you're a political, if you're a voting purist, get that pure. That's the only time I would tell you don't be pure. Because you can't, you're not going to get everything you want. You're not. But you can get some of what you want or a lot of what you want. That's all I can do tonight. And y'all are looking at me like, "Woo! God bless you when that goes on radio. All right, stand up tonight. Did, did y'all get anything out of that tonight? Was it good? All right. And we like to say, if you don't vote, don't complain. Amen. But no, no, I deal with issues, and I believe issues are very, very spiritual. Let's just go to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. We just thank you for your word. It's so true. It's so pure. It's so right. And, Lord, we just come to you and ask you, help us to walk with you, to please you, to be discerning, to stand for truth as much as we can. Thank you, Lord, for the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for delivering us from a devil's hell and placing us on the rock of salvation. Thank you for renewing our minds. Thank you, Lord, that we're not what we used to be. And it hasn't even been seen what we shall be when we see you. Lord, we believe you are near at the very door. And let's just worship him.